Hey everybody, Jason Wood here, the VA Loan Guy. Thanks for checking in on another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. Uh, we have a really cool guest today. We have Captain Brian Dixon, um, U.S. Navy uh, uh, base commander at Point Loma, and uh, he carved out a little bit of time for us today. And we really want to get into um, you know some of his experiences in the Navy, and um, also kind of talk about some current day stuff, what's going on, and how we can kind of help get through a little bit of this pandemic that we're all going through as well. So, um, Captain, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Sorry, I, I butchered your last name. <laughs> um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, we just wanted to um, just touch base a little bit. So, a, a little bit about your past that I know of. You, you went to the Naval Academy, and um, you were in, in the sub submarine part of, of the Navy for quite a while. And um, I think what's really fascinating about all that is, is two things. Having pursued the military academies when I was young is A, you know, how did you get into the academies? Because you hear, especially in like the San Diego area, we run into a lot of people that were, you know, went to an academy at some point, right? So it's probably a little more prevalent here than maybe some other areas of the country. But I think going to the academy is, is a big deal. It's, it's not easy to get into the military academies. Um, and that experience is not your typical college experience that the majority of America sees. And then um, just kind of take us through like working on submarines and um, what is that like being in this metal tube hundreds of feet below the surface of the water and, and all that stuff. So yeah, let's, let's start with the, the academy and how you kind of got in there and a little bit about that. Sure thing, Jason. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so I grew up in Casper, Wyoming. Uh, my dad was an army officer and my grandfather was an army officer and all their army stories told me I didn't want to be a part of the army. Uh, so I chose, chose to join either the Navy or the Air Force. Actually, it really came down to I really, really wanted to fly. And I hadn't really considered a service academy because I heard, hey, it's a lot of military, a lot of rules, and I wanted a real college experience. And I went to a summer program in high school at the Air Force Academy, and I was just amazed at the facilities. And when I realized how much uh, was poured into my education, and how much uh, contact time I had with the actual professors. Class sizes at service academies are very small compared to a major university. I just couldn't imagine uh, not pursuing that opportunity. Now I had a huge advantage. Uh, if you grew up in Wyoming, it's a tiny state population. Uh, my hometown was about 50,000 people. This, the population of Wyoming, I don't even think is as fifth as, as fifth the size of San Diego. Um, so, uh, we still have two senators and one representative. So any, any high school student that's interested in a service academy, a key part of it is getting your state representative or your, your U.S. representative or your U.S. senator to endorse you uh, to go to a service academy. So I applied for that through my uh, House of Representative. Um, at the time, it was Dick Cheney. And uh, he uh, selected me. And he actually went on to be Secretary of Defense, of all things. Um, and then his uh, relief actually inducted me um, and then you also have to apply to the service academy, which is very challenging as well. I think a key thing for a youngster thinking about going to a service academy is to be well-rounded. It is not sufficient to say, hey, I'm a great football player or I'm good at academics. The service academies, and they are very consistent in this, expect people to be whole person individuals. Uh, you can't just type out and say, hey, I'm going to do this one thing. And I think that is a very valuable because being a, a good naval officer or frankly an officer in any of our services, you have to be great at a lot of different things. And you have to have the attitude that no matter what the challenge, 
you're going to rise to that challenge. You're going to learn what it takes to be great at it. And you're going to push through those challenges. And the service academies are a great uh, engine to enhance whatever skills you have in that area and make it better. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to get selected. Uh, I was class of 93. I spent four years there. And when I went, I thought for certain I was going to be in the back of an F-14 Tomcat. Uh, Top Gun came out when I was in high school. Uh, my grandfather was a pilot. Uh, I was going to fly. And my senior year at the Naval Academy, I, uh, I went through a physical screening to see if I was physically qualified to be in aviation. I had very bad eyesight. And it uh, turned out they wouldn't accept me even. Yeah. And I was torn up. And I oh, realized man. that, uh, hey, this is my dream. And it's just been taken away. And, and for a moment, I thought about quitting. And then I woke up and I was like, what am I thinking? I, this is not the right answer. Um, but I asked my roommate, and he was going to go into submarines. So that was really the first time I'd considered being in submarines. And he talked to me about it for a while. I talked to some officers that were submariners at the Naval Academy. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll see if this works. I thought for certain, okay, I'll do my five years out. I will go get an, I had an engineering degree. I was planning on just going to go uh, into the engineering field and be an engineer for Boeing or some company like that. And uh, what I discovered after my first sea tour that I kind of liked it, I really wanted to go back and teach ROTC. Uh, and at the time, that was a requirement that you would agree to go back for another assignment uh, at sea if you did that job. Uh, so I thought, you know, why not? I'll, I'll go do another uh, stint. And uh, I had an awesome time teaching ROTC. I saw that real college experience. It's where I met my wife. I was at University of Nebraska Lincoln during some of their bigger college football runs. So that was oh, an awesome fun. environment. And, you know, so I served on a submarine out of Hawaii. And so I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit is it is very challenging duty. I, I can't think of a job that is more time intensive and challenging than duty on a submarine, whether you're the, the captain or you're the person that works in a lower level of the engine room. Uh, it is an all-in job. Uh, the hours are brutal. And looking back on doing it for my pretty much my entire career up to this point, uh, I really appreciate those challenges. I think a lot of times we look at those challenges as a burden, but they really forge the people we are growing into. And I really look at challenges different than, than I did before I was a submariner. And I think that's ultimately, it's kind of, odd to say that you know the worst part of the job is the best part of the job but I think in submarines that's really true I think I'm a much more capable person than I was because of my submarine experience and and largely that's due to a submarine despite it being a pretty big ship or submarines are over 300 feet long um, there isn't that many people we can fit inside of there for all the different jobs that have to happen to make the submarine work from the people that launch the torpedoes at the front the people that are manning the sonars to watch. Uh, so when we're underwater, the only way we can tell what's going on around us is by taking in sonar information. The sound waves propagating through the water is how we detect other ships around us, other submarines. Uh, it's how we, we detect the bottom beneath us. And uh, based on that information, we make decisions to safely operate the ship and then engage it in warfare. Uh, then we have a set of people that operate the nuclear reactor, which is our power source which enables us to operate pretty much indefinitely in terms of power underwater. Uh, and then we have a set of people that are doing the navigation and then we have a few folks that are cooking our meals and uh, altogether it's a neat team environment. And so it's, it's, it was an absolute blessing to spend 20 years in the Navy kind of in a small town because the submarine is kind of like a little small town 
right. of a group of individuals dedicated to working as a team. And in the end, when I look back on it, I see, I remember a lot of fun times of being in that tight knit group. I don't remember thinking, man, it's a tight space because of those long working hours and then that tight group of people working together. Uh, I just remember a lot of, you know, a lot of pride of it experience of participating in something much bigger than myself. That's really interesting. So um, fun question, I guess, is there a height restriction to be stationed in the sub? <laughs> no, there isn't. It's kind of, well, I think there is, but it's, it's crazy. I think it's, it has to be over six, five. Um, I served, I distinctly remember serving with one officer in particular. He was the Commodore of my submarine squadron when I was an executive officer. So the executive officer is the number two on a submarine. So it was a pretty senior officer. And uh, I, I met this individual. There was only a couple places in the spaces that we spent, like control room or in the wardroom, which is where officers take their meals on a submarine, that he could literally stand up to his full height. And most of the time he was like this. And I would look at him and I thought, man, you spent 25 years doing this job and you couldn't stand up most of your tour. But I'm 6'1", and most places on a submarine, I don't have any trouble walking around without bumping my head. But I've always kept my hair grown because I shaved my head one time. And uh, literally, I was running into all sorts of stuff and getting all these cuts on my head. And I realized your hair is kind of a protective shield if you're in an environment with a lot of things hitting you. And uh, it, uh, so I never did that again because it was too painful to have my hair. <laughs> I'm lucky I kept my hair my whole career. Yeah, no, no kidding. You're lucky you still have your hair. That's more than some people can say, right? Um, um, so, um, so when you're on a submarine, I mean, take me into like your, your first experience in the sub. I'm sure that like for me, just thinking about going several hundred feet underwater, like there's no windows, like driving this thing, right? It's all instruments that you're relying on. And of course you have the pressure of the ocean and you know, all these what if scenarios that could enter your mind. What's it like your first time on a sub? So my first experience was on the USS Kamehameha. The Kamehameha was built in the uh, 60s. It originally, so our Navy operates really two major types of submarines. We operate our attack submarines, which are a little bit smaller. Uh, their primary mission is to shoot torpedoes or cruise missiles, which are relatively short range missiles for hitting targets on land. Um, and we also operate a much bigger ship called a Strategic Ballistic Missile Submarine, an SSBN. And uh, ours today are armed with 24 inter, uh, submarine-launched intercontinental missiles, uh, which can go great distances, and that's our strategic deterrence. So that's what deters other countries from doing a nuclear attack against us. Um, so originally, my submarine was intended for that latter mission, that strategic mission. But at the end of the Cold War, we decided we didn't need these as many of them. And many of them had a lot of operational life left in them, and Kamehameha was one of those submarines. So it was converted over to hauling uh, seals around. So we were basically an underwater bus, and we attached these fixtures to the, the back of our submarine, and they were underwater garages. And we could have the submarine underwater right below the surface, and the back door of this underwater garage would open up, and a mini submarine could either leave or come back into the submarine or into this garage. We shut the door, we pumped the water down, and then the SEALs could get out of their mini sub and then come back into the side of the submarine proper. So that was my first assignment was going to this kind of submarine, which was really a unique environment in the submarine force. And we did missions that other submarines didn't do. And it was a lot of experimentation because we only had two of these. We had the Poke on the East Coast and the Kamehameha on the West Coast. 
So I'd gone through a training pipeline and I will say about our training, it is, it is literally the best educational experience I ever had in terms of officially taking someone, I mean, who knows how to operate a, a nuclear reactor, right? It's not something that's taught in high school. It's the most efficient and effective training to take someone who knows very little about something to having a mastery level of a particular aspect of it. So I, I wasn't trained on how to build a reactor. I wasn't trained on nuclear physics but I am an expert on maintaining a safe nuclear reactor. So I showed up to the ship with those skill sets. So quickly, I uh, was given assignments of being responsible for the nuclear propulsion plant. And then it took about a year of training experience to learn how to drive the submarine. And by drive it, I mean, I wasn't actually operating the wheel. I was in the control room telling the folks how to uh, control the depth of the ship and then employ the submarine to execute our missions. And uh, so what was my first experience like? Bewildering. I went down the hatch of the submarine into the space where my rack was. I really didn't know exactly where I was in the submarine. And I was very uncomfortable with my experience. But it's a blessing on submarine because that small environment, there's lots of people that want you to succeed. And in fact, I think that whole, my whole career, that's what I remember is how many people were around me that were kind of cheering me along, who were giving me the tools. You know, sometimes the tools were painful in the form of getting yelled at. Sure. Uh, but looking back on it, I think consistently there was this desire to help me succeed. And I really appreciate that as I look back on it. So going through that experience, that ship initially didn't have uh, the best environment. You know, and ships have, some ships have good cultures and some have bad cultures. And it was kind of a bad culture I walked into. Uh, but there was a lot of junior officers that were fun to work with. My peers were awesome. And about a year in, we had a change of command. And my second captain just had all the right values and principles about what it was to be a submariner, what it was to be a naval officer, what it was to take care of people. I had an outstanding executive officer. Um, I remember distinctly him asking me on my first underway, uh, hey, are, do you got everything underway, under control? I just assumed it was my responsibility, but that guy actually looking out for me and caring enough to ask the question, you know, taught me some good lessons in leadership about you really do need to care about your people if you're going to claim to be a good leader. Uh, so that, that experience over the course of the year built a lot of my confidence and uh, gave me a lot of great insights into all the different things we could do on a submarine. Uh, how we use our submarines today, our peacetime mission is typically to observe things in parts of the world that we wouldn't want our adversaries to know we're observing. And uh, so that is a pretty exciting mission. Uh, we do that independently. We don't coordinate with other ships when we do that. Uh, we go out there and uh, we're kind of alone and unafraid. Uh, our wartime mission is to coordinate with our fleet uh, to uh, find our adversary ships and sink them um, with extreme prejudice. Uh, and then also to conduct uh, attacks on land targets to support our fleet and then our land base um, uh, military forces, the Marines and the Army. Um, and so we spend an inordinate amount of time training for all three of those particular missions. And uh, it's a very challenging aspect. Warfare is getting only more complicated. And uh, so, you know, throughout my whole career, that's the other thing I remember most is the, uh, the intense training that goes into it. That's really cool. Um, so, you know, in the Navy, I mean, it's fairly well known, like being, you join the Navy and you can see the world. Um, in, in a submarine, it, it sounds to me like it's a little bit more covert from an operational standpoint. Do you get to see as much as the world as someone who might be on like a surface level ship or? Well, 
We're, um, we have agreements with different countries to pull our submarines into those countries. So because we have to establish those agreements, that does limit the ports that submarines go to a little bit. So if you're on a destroyer, uh, you're in the surface Navy, if you really want to, if that's your number one goal to see the Navy or see the world in the Navy, I'd go to a surface ship. Um, but submarines still do a lot of great port visits. I've been to Australia, I've been to Japan, Korea, uh, a lot of my friends have been to Thailand. I, I even went to Kuwait, um, uh, UAE. Uh, and then I was always on a West Coast submarine. All the submarines I ever served on uh, pulled into San Diego at least once. And so that's uh -huh. probably ended up to be a base CO here, uh, which that was an awesome blessing because I love San Diego. Uh, but East Coast submarines, they go to England, Italy, Greece. Um, and so there's lots of port opportunities. Now, I said we could stand water indefinitely for our power source. That's true. Uh, but the humans eat all the food on board. So we have to come into port about every 60 to 90 days to bring on food. So then that sets up a nice Liberty port when we're deployed. And we deploy typically for about six months. We're away from our home port. Uh, but during that deployment, we stop every few months for food and then a little bit of rest and re relaxation for the crew. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so you had talked a little bit, you know, like the, the leadership influence, right? When you had your, your second CO and stuff. And um, now you've, you've obviously, you know, climbed the ranks and you're, you're in a command position today and um, probably several unit commanders beneath you. Um, how do you implore, you know, that leadership technique and that leadership style to, to the others, you know, that um, report up to you? Well, uh, so in a base structure, it's kind of interesting is I'm, I'm sort of like a mayor. So on our base, we have 70 commands that work here on Point Loma, but they actually don't report to me. Just like, uh, say, the president of Qualcomm doesn't report to Mayor Faulkner. Uh, mayor Faulkner enables Qualcomm, the business, to do some good stuff here in San Diego, and they coordinate on some stuff, but it isn't that kind of directional authority. And I think uh, my leadership style has really uh, acquitted me well through Davina Baseo because I really feel that, uh, you know, there's first off lots of different leadership styles. And I think you got to work in a variety of different leadership styles depending on your situation. But everyone kind of has their own preferred leadership style. And I think mine is more kind of akin to uh, coordinating uh, people that are self actuating, people that are going to take care of themselves and then to coordinate those efforts together for the, the greater good. Um, so I think my career, and that's the nice thing about being a submarine leadership is you just are blessed with a lot of go-getter people that a lot of times you just kind of hold them back a little bit because they're you know usually very aggressive people for getting stuff done. Um, so the key part is giving them the tools, you know, giving them the right training, uh, giving them opportunity, especially the opportunity to fail in a controlled manner. You know, we say fail fast. Well, it isn't to fail to the point you can't restart again. And, but I do think that people need to have that sense that if they don't get it right, uh, they could fail. And a lot of times I think leadership is too constraining. So I've tried to create an environment where people are comfortable with making mistakes, uh, just not irrecoverable mistakes. Um, and then the other piece is to set high standards for what we're trying to accomplish and to communicate those clearly so that people strive for a greater goal, something beyond what they normally would achieve that, that is likely reachable with a lot of effort. Because if you don't have that kind of in your life, I feel like there isn't the satisfaction 
And uh, without that satisfaction, I think that's what really kills morale. Uh, as a base CEO, we put a lot into recreational facilities, good dining facilities, good opportunities for our folks to take time off. And we, we call that morale boosting. But to me, that's nothing compared to the morale boosting that goes for accomplishing a tough mission, doing a tough job and doing it well. To me, that's where real morale, especially in the Navy, starts from. And I think as a base CEO, that's something I've tried to emphasize with our folks is um, that's, that's what we're all striving towards. Sure. Yeah. And then <clears throat> I know we're, we're in the middle of the, the COVID-19, the coronavirus epidemic right now. And, you know, there's so much news and stuff and there's probably more negative than positive news out there. Um, but how is, how has that impacted, you know, the Navy or, or more um, specifically maybe, you know, your base and, and how are you guys handling that? I, I feel like um, we probably could grab some good takeaways from how, you know, the military, um, affects leadership in, in these stressful times, right? And this isn't something that, you know, um, civilians go through on a regular basis. And of course, in the military, you know, you're, you're trained to deal with stressful situations often. So it, it probably isn't as difficult for you guys as maybe the civilian world. But um, how are you guys dealing with this? And, and what types of maybe advice could you provide to those people who are maybe you know, leaders in their workforce or just, you know, leaders in their family or something like that to help kind of propel, um, you know, maybe some, some hope or some optimism and just to pull through, you know, together and, and get through this. Well, absolutely, Jason. I, and I think we're really challenged just like our civilian population on that. But I think my biggest takeaway, watching how we've handled things here on Point Loma, how the Navy as a whole has handled it, how other bases in the Navy region Southwest area have handled it, is my biggest takeaway is, is local conditions matter. It's important to understand what's happening on the world stage. It's important to understand what's happening as a nation and staying aligned with those different organizations. You don't wanna just go your own way. But our local conditions here at Point Loma are different than what they are in Washington, D.C. And they're even different than what the Navy base San Diego over on 32nd Street, what they're experiencing. My population of the people that I serve on this base is different than the sailors that work on Coronado. And how they're different is, is the 17,000 people that normally work on Navy base Point Loma, a majority of them are actually civilians and a more majority of them work in some sort of high technology research development or acquisitions. And we were very blessed on Point Loma because a lot of my workforce, when I armed them with the information of what was coming, gave them some options on how their different organizations could respond to this challenge, they quickly shifted a lot of their workforce to telework. That allowed us to drop the number of people that are actually driving to work on Navy Base Point Loma, and that significantly lowered our density of people. And I think that's a major reason we've had a very low rate of positive cases. I can't get into how many we've had, but we are much lower than General San Diego or uh, in the military as a whole. And I think that's because we were able to take those measures early. Um, and the other thing I'm blessed with is I have great tenant commands. And so we hold uh, frequent telecoms. We were originally doing them weekly. We'd set up a process to do this actually in the event of an earthquake of all things. If I oh. couldn't communicate uh, if I couldn't have people come in for a meeting because we wouldn't necessarily have buildings, I wanted to have the ability to quickly stand up a telecom that we could all dial into and I could give them the situation and they could all make their independent decisions to protect their people. So we use that same framework in this environment to hold frequent meetings early on. 
So they quickly were getting the same information I was getting, and then we were able to uh, synchronize our efforts together, but also give them the latitude to protect their people as they best saw fit. And what, I, what I've observed is, is my tenant commands have been very aggressive on uh, protecting their folks, and that's enabled us to have, I think, a really great response without me being very authoritative and directed. And uh, so we're coordinated, yet we're also um, flexible in how every command's approaching. So our folks that are going down to submarines where we just can't have an infection get down into that ship, they're being really protective of their folks. And our folks that don't have that necessarily risk and have a younger workforce, they're a little bit more flexible in how they're approaching it. And I think that's really helped us tune and optimize our approach. And I, I think my, my sense of where our, our folks are here on the base is kind of a low level of fear, high level of understanding, and overall, I think we're working well as a team. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, as, as a civilians as a whole, kind of try and hedge through this thing is, you know, employing some of those similar things, right? It's just um, following the guidance and leadership of, you know, the local authorities, you know, the governors and the mayors and things like that. And just, you know, following suit, you know, they're, they're getting the information as raw as it can be versus, you know, most of us are seeing it filtered through a media spin of some sort. Um, just really just paying attention, you know? Absolutely. And I think you hit on a great point there is, you know, going to the CDC's website, going to John Hopkins website, going to the first source of information without going through any sort of filtering, and then ask yourself, what do these numbers mean to you? I think is really a powerful tool to make better decisions than just taking a filtered piece. And the other thing I tell every, at every level, whether it's someone sitting at home or a leader of a business is, if you're concerned with what your leadership, whether that's your city leadership or your base leadership is doing, you know, in a appropriate manner, communicate that concern. Uh, because I've been really fortunate to have some tenants that say, hey, maybe we should do it this way. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I wish I had thought of it, but I didn't. So, but we're still gonna do it. And I think that's been really helpful. That feedback to leadership, because we're really watching this COVID thing, but there's these other risk factors out there, the effects on our economy, uh, isolation of people that are vulnerable. Uh, how we tackle those problems in parallel is essential for a great outcome for our greater society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you seeing um, with your people just, you know, a little bit of that, that cabin fever mentality starting to get out? I think people are starting to get, I know I am, but um, probably anxious to, to get back to being out and about and stuff, right? Absolutely. And, and I think that's why it's key. And I think this is echoing hopefully what the, the city's saying as well is we're really already leaning forward on a phased restoration. What we don't want is I want to have that cabin fever and just go, okay, forget it. I'm just going to live my life like I did before this happened. We're right. really trying to lay a framework out for folks so they can see, okay, we're just going to get these things back in sequence. We won't add a lot of risk by doing it this way, um, but we can address that cabin fever as, as you put it. Yeah. Yeah. What's um, on a personal, what's, what's something you're looking forward to doing once we kind of get phased back into a little more normal life? Wow. Uh, what, well, get out there in San Diego again, go out to the beach, the restaurants. Um, here in Point Loma, we've got some fantastic restaurants. I miss going out with my wife to those restaurants yeah. um, and taking the kids out. Uh, and also, uh, I go to the San Diego Yacht Club. I really miss going down to the Yacht Club. So uh, that's uh, one of the things I miss. Right on. Yeah, I, I echo that. Getting to the beaches and, and the local restaurants here, just we have such a great restaurant scene in San Diego that um, definitely miss that. Definitely a nice treat. 
Um, well, Captain, I want to just say thank you. I know you're very busy and um, we really appreciate you jumping on the show with us today, um, armed and ready. And if anybody out there um, has questions uh, about anything we talked about today, you know, they can get in touch with me at valonguy.us. And, um, and sir, we just thank you so much for your service and, um, and for your time with us today. Thank you. Jason, thanks very much for a great conversation. Have a great okay. day.